Now, Birdsong, fun and fascinating talk about the top stories in today's headlines. Birdsong may just be the most qualified talk show host in the business, thanks to his many careers in law, government, and education. Here's your host, Leonard Birdsong. Hello, folks. This is Birdsong on the radio again with you. Almost New Year. Happy New Year to you folks coming up. End of 2018 right now. I have some things that I certainly want to talk about, some things that might be interesting to you, things interesting to the African-American community. I have a guest coming up later in the show. This is the end of the month and the end of the year. I've got some news tidbits, a short story from Paul Harvey, and, of course, some riddles for you. For those of you who have been listening and ever want to get in touch with me, I have a new text number. You can text me your ideas or your thoughts or your comments at 904-878-8170. That's 904-878-8170. That's my new text message. You might want to put a 1 in front of that 904. At any rate, I'm glad to be here with you. It's been quite a year, 2018. And there's some things I want to tell you about today. We have a fellow who we will give our final salute to. He was a Tuskegee Airman. He lived in New York City. He died at 100 years old. His name, Wilford DeFore. He fought discrimination at home. Then he fought the Nazis in Europe. He helped America win both wars. DeFore was one of the last of the famed Tuskegee Airmen, members of an all-black unit, or all-black units, that included pilots, technicians, mechanics, and other support personnel who signed up for the Army Air Force to fight in World War II. He died the first Saturday in uh, December of this year at age 100. A home care attendant found him in the bathtub of his Fifth Avenue apartment in Harlem, at 9 a.m. on that day. Police said he apparently died of natural causes. His death leaves between 100 and 200 of the approximately 16,000 airmen still alive. DeFore, who served as chief official in the Airmen's Engineering Office, was, as I understand, the person who decided to paint the tails of the aircraft, the fighter planes that the black pilots flew in, painted their tails red, and they became known as the Red Tails. So he did that, and after he got out of the service, he worked for 33 years for the United States Postal Service. And uh, as a matter of fact, in, April, in November of this year, he did his last official act. He appeared at the Colonial Park branch in Harlem for a ceremony renaming the building for the Tuskegee Airmen. The naming, or the renaming, was important to him and in his view to his fallen brothers. And DeFore was 100 years old. He served his country. God bless him. We pay homage and give a final salute to Wilfred DeFore. Now there's more in the news that I want you to know about. As I broadcast today, the government of the United States is on its fourth day of shutdown. It was shut down 
just before Christmas. We don't know exactly how long this is going to last. But despite this, just before this uh, this shutdown of the government, President Trump signed a sweeping bipartisan criminal justice bill. Most of you may not have heard about that. In a ceremony at the White House, Trump touted what's called the First Step Act after the House of Representatives overwhelmingly approved the far-reaching overhaul of the criminal justice uh, the overhaul of the criminal justice system in a generation a far-reaching overhaul of the gov- criminal justice system in a generation and I tell you it doesn't come too soon we've needed this for a long long time I worked for the Department of Justice I was a prosecutor later I was a defense attorney I know that our criminal justice system locks too many people up for too long a period, and it needed to be reformed. The new law, which shortens sentences for some offenders and expands job training and other programs for prisoners, reflects a major pivot by the Republican Party from its punitive law and order stance in the 1980s to policies that emphasize rehabilitation and aim to save money. We're spending a lot of money to keep people locked up. It's called mass incarceration. This bill is the beginning of the end of mass incarceration. Mr. Trump tweeted shortly after the criminal justice legislation passed. He tweeted, quote, a great, a great bipartisan achievement for everybody, end quote. Now, the new law will change several sentencing laws, such as reducing what's called the three-strike penalties for drug felonies from life behind bars to 25 years, and it will retroactively limit the disparity in sentencing guidelines between crack and powder cocaine offenses. This is a long time coming. Both crack, cocaine, and powder offenses should be charged and sentenced the same way, but basically what Congress did 25 years ago is that they made longer sentences for people found with crack and lesser jail sentences for people who were found and prosecuted for powder offenses. Guess what? More black people had crack cocaine that they were prosecuted for, and fewer white people were prosecuted for powder cocaine. Now, this effect in getting rid of these guidelines, this disparity, may affect 2,000 federal inmates. It also overhauls the federal prison system to help inmates earn reduced sentences and lower recidivism, recidivism rates. Through reductions in sentencing, the law, which does not cover state jails and prisons, would do the equivalent of shaving a collective 53,000 years off the sentences of federal inmates over the next 10 years. That's a whole lot. Now, you might want to know that as of December of this year, there are some 181,000 federal inmates, according to the Bureau of Prisons. Now, that number has gone down fairly significantly over the last 15 to 20 years, At its height, we had about 220,000 federal inmates. We're down to 181,000 right now. I like to say a similar move has been afoot in many states as crime rates have dropped and officials have pursued cost-effective ways to cut prison population. 
I've always believed, even when I was a prosecutor, that we prosecute too many people for too many offenses and we put them in jails and prison for too long a time. Most countries that have criminal justice systems certainly prosecute people. Some put them to death, but generally the sentences are not as long as the sentences in the United States. Now, the bill that I'm talking about that Mr. Trump endorsed is called reasonable sentencing reform while keeping dangerous and violent criminals off the street. And I hope that's what it will do. The thinking of the bill was heavenly influenced by Mr. Trump's son-in-law and White House advisor Jared Kushner, who had long advocated sentencing, restructuring, and marshaled endorsements of the bill from a divorce, a diverse coalition including law enforcement and the American Civil Liberties Union. For years, Mr. Kushner had been advocating to overhaul sentencing laws. Why is that? It's an issue that was deeply personal to him because his father had been incarcerated for more than a year at a federal prison in Alabama a decade ago for tax violations. Mr. Kushner personally rallied key Republican and Democratic lawmakers to support the bill, which he pitched to the president as a rare bipartisan deal and persuaded Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to bring to a vote. I'm glad that he did. This is just the beginning. It's the first stepped act to reduce criminal penalties in the United States, only now for the federal system. Just so you know, in the federal system, 181,000 people, when you add in all the states and county governments that have prisons and jails, there are just under 2 million Americans who are incarcerated. Just under 2 million. Of the 181,000 in federal system, 52% are minorities, African Americans and Hispanics. Of the 181,000, only 1.5% are women. So it's mainly men who are in prison. We hope that this will change things for the better. I'm certainly for it. And I will say again that I've helped put people in prison because I really thought that they needed to be there. But sometimes for drug dealing that's not violent, I don't think people need to spend 20 years in jail. So those are the things that are going on. The government is closed. Here's something else I want to talk about. I read an article in the Washington Post headline. What's up with all those black men who voted for the Republicans in the Georgia governor's race? Had you heard about that? Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. We've learned that white female voters in Georgia showed little interest in helping black women fulfill their dream of electing Stacey Abrams as governor, which would have made her the first African-American woman to head a state in the nation's history. We find that 75% of white women voted for Republican Brian Kemp, who was declared the winner. Now, among black women, 95, or I'm sorry, among black women, 97% supported Abrams. Again, she was the first black woman to win a major party's nomination for governor. Although white suburban women have been praised for helping to flip the U.S. House of Representatives to 
from Republican to Democratic control, liberal politics and political pundits and activists criticized them for backing Kemp over the female Democratic candidate. But another group of voters also raised eyebrows for how they voted in the race in which Abrams fell about 17,000 votes short of forcing a runoff with Kemp. Black men. Black men voted for Kemp at a higher rate than black women, according to exit polling, a data point that drew gasps and rebuke on social media and news commentary. Here it is. According to CNN's exit polling, 11% of black men voted for Kemp. The Associated Press vote cast reported 8% for Kemp. Now, these numbers are reminiscent of the double-digit level of support that Donald Trump got among black men in 2016 in the presidential election. It's been asked by Renee Graham, why are so many black men, why do they align with a party that now more than ever is unified by white identity politics? Ms. Graham says this Republican Party is not the party of Lincoln. This is unabashedly the party of white supremacy, migrant family separation, race and fear mongering, and Brett Kavanaugh, end quote. All that was a quote by Ms. Renee Graham. I have to agree with her on this. There's a fellow by the name of Ted Johnson who's written on this topic also. He's a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice in Washington, and he said that black male voters' behavior in Georgia's gubernatorial race reflected a return of how they voted before 2008 when Barack Obama made his successful bid to become the first black president in the United States. Before that election, 82% of black men voted for Democrats, about 10 points lower than black women. Now that Obama is out, basically black men have gone back to where they were before. In terms of supporting Democrats, Johnson says the fact that Abrams got in the high 80s or low 90s means she outperformed Democratic candidates pre-Obama among black men. Now, is this brought on by sexism? Mr. Johnson says sexism was probably not a major factor in black men supporting Abrams at a lower rate. Mr. Johnson went on to say, he cited a paper published earlier this year that looked at how gender stereotypes affected black and white voters' behavior in the 2016 election. You might be surprised at this. The paper found that sexism plays more of a role in white voting behavior than black voting behavior. The research, along with other literature, shows a higher level of sexist attitudes among men across racial groups. Black female voters show the least susceptibility to sexist attitudes voting for female candidates, particularly for black female candidates, at a higher rate than any other group. Johnson says it's noteworthy that the sexism appears to have its greatest effect on the electoral choices of white women who are least likely to support female candidates. They go for men over women. Black men who voted for Mr. Kemp 
were not so much rejecting Abrams as embracing the conservative messages of rugged individual and free market economics. Now, that's what he says. I don't believe that. I think black men don't want women to get ahead of them. Mr. Johnson goes on to say that the conservative mantra of self-determination and economic empowerment resonates with men, but especially with certain cohort of black men, like the brothers that are hustling CDs to the brothers that open barbershops, that entrepreneurial spirit is alive in the black community. He said that those voters believe that the Republican talking points of getting government out of the way and letting people determine their own economic path sounds good to black men. And it's a mantra they support rather than having the government say, we're going to help you be a man. <laughs> yeah, right. However, black voters' support for Republicans rarely rises above the low teens because of the Republican Party's increasingly racially charged politics, especially in recent years with Trump's diversive, I'm sorry, divisive rather, rhetoric and policies going largely unchallenged by party leaders. Trump election, Trump's election has been applauded by people who espouse racist beliefs and he's often declined to criticize their actions, such as last year's Charlottesville, when a neo-Nazi drove his car into a crowd of counter-protesters killing a woman. Mr. Johnson again said there are a lot of black people who may be social conservatives or physical conservatives, but are liberal on the issue of civil rights and race. Finally, he said the Republican Party will continue to struggle to win support among black voters, even those who hold social and economically conservative beliefs, so long as it's perceived as racist. Now, I certainly do go along with that. The Republican Party has gone too far to the right with its white supremacy, with its unfailing toadyism to Donald Trump, and to um, trying to bring back the way the country was in the 1940s and 1950s. I don't want it to go back, and I'll do everything I can to stop it. I don't know if the Republican Party is going to prosper, but the way it's handling this country, it's not going to prosper. We are a diverse nation. We've always been a diverse nation. Diversity is a good thing and not a bad thing. There is no immigration crisis. It's only a crisis of Mr. Trump's making. And I will be glad when he's out of office. Now, that's just my personal opinion. I think he's been bad for this country. I think America, make America great again, is not what Mr. Trump is doing. He's making it worse. This is Birdsong. You can text me at 904-878-8170. I'll text you back or I'll talk to you. On the next program, stay with us. There's more to come. This is Birdsong. Hello, folks. This is Birdsong back with you. Thanks for sticking with us. We're coming to the end of 2018, but I've got a good show for you. Our next guest 
says, how can America heal from its own national trauma caused by hate crimes and growing polarization? Our guest is a psychotherapist. Her name is Gillian Padgett, and she has insights on what to do when the unthinkable happens, whether it's murder, abuse, or the result of a natural disaster. She's going to share some of her thoughts with us. Miss Gillian, thank you for coming on Birdsong. How are you? I'm really good. How are you? I'm fine. Did you have a good Christmas? I had a lovely time, and it's snowing now, so it makes it very Christmassy. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing like a white Christmas, they say, huh? That's right, yeah. <laughs> Listen, Gillian, uh, you are a psychotherapist. You've also been trained as a hypnotherapist, and you've been working with victims of crime and families of murder victim for over 25 years. How did you get into this business? Uh, well, I started off by thinking it would be really good to study psychotherapy, and I did that. And then I, because there had been a tragedy in my family, I studied, uh, I worked and trained with victims of crime and for families of murder victims as well in the UK. And as I was working in that direction and helping victims, I realized that most of them were very stressed out and always talking over and over the same problem didn't necessarily resolve their feelings, which is why I decided to study stress, which was a little bit earlier than uh, many people were working in that field to begin with. And in doing that, I found it made a big help. And the next step was using hypnosis because that can make some very significant and very swift positive changes. Mm. And so that was the sort of process I went through. So hypno hypnosis really does work, huh? Oh, hypnosis makes a massive difference. It reaches the subconscious mind and can neutralize some of the programming that we've given ourselves and society gives us. You know, when people are disasterizing all the time, uh, and when we watch really dreadful happenings on television, as we do that, we become traumatized ourselves very often. I mean, after some of the major traumas in recent years, the doctors find themselves prescribing more medication for anxiety and depression. And so, All right, I understand, I understand that, Gillian. What a, tell me this. How do you define trauma? I think you people talk about it, but I'm not sure what the definition is. Well, trauma is normally something that happens out of our control and that causes massive shock to our system. And then very often we keep replaying the trauma or whatever it is, whether it's a, a forest fire that devastated the land and made many people homeless, or whether it's a, a school shooting. We often imagine ourselves in that place, and then we begin to start feeling traumatized. We, the, the stress response within us starts becoming activated by um, the amygdala, because it activates with fear, and then the whole stress response starts working, and that can become very damaging to our health. Is that so you, you, is that so the oh. immediate results of trauma, you say, can be feeling unsafe, things like that, hatred and fear of one another, all of that kind of thing? Fear is, is huge, yes. Fear is the activator, and fear is what automatically happens, I think. And mm. um, we go into the shock. And we do feel unsafe. Normally, we un feel unsafe 
whether it's um, a natural disaster or whether it's something that's been inflicted upon us by a person, we usually feel unsafe. And so it's a matter of finding a way to feel safe again. And, I mean, that sounds simple, but it's very important that we do that. Well, it, it does sound simple. I I have not had that much trauma in my life, but I remember 2001, I was on my way to school. I taught in law school, and I was mm-hmm. watching television, and I saw a plane crash into the World Trade Center. And later right. that yeah. same day, I saw the two towers come down. This was one of the strangest traumatic things I'd ever seen in real life. 25,000 people, I mean, 2,500 people killed in the United States. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. Now, yeah. I've gotten I've gotten I, over it, but it stuck with me for a long time. Yeah. It, it stays in the, I mean, once we see it and we imagine ourselves in it, it becomes part of our experience. Our, our, our brain doesn't know the difference between imagination or a, a, a movie and reality for us. Mm. And so it responds in exactly that way. Whether, mm. whether you're watching, you know, the World Trade Center, which was a horrific, you know, event, but whether really you're watching was. that or, or you're, you're reading a book, you can get traumatized, which I think surprises many people. Yeah. Well, tell me this. You have some ABCs of coping with trauma. Can you tell us something about that? Yes. Um, the first thing to do, really and truly, under any circumstance, really, is to begin to breathe slowly and deeply um, and in a gentle rhythm because that intercepts the stress response. Mm-hmm. Because when we're, when, we're, when we're very stressed, we start sort of breathing shallowly and very fast. So as we do that type of breathing, we begin to slow ourselves down and we prevent the stress response from happening, whether we see a car accident or we're in one or we see the World Trade Center collapsing. So what about P, what is it, PSTD or PTSD, the long-term P- trauma yeah. that soldiers experience? How do you deal with that? I mean, these people are have problems for years and years. Have you dealt with any of those cases? I have, yes. Um, I think each one is different in the circumstances that they become traumatized. But they, when I'm working with them, I usually go through the basics of, of managing stress and, and the, the, the A to D of coping and then looking at various things, one of the one of the key one of the things I found most helpful with those people is teaching teaching you how to cope with stress when it happens on your own. Because very often, like one of my clients, it just happened when he had a cup of tea. You know, he normally drank coffee, and then he was he decided that he would stop off at a, a coffee shop somewhere, and he had a cup a cup of tea instead, and he then got a major panic attack, which mm. was related, and that was related to when he had nearly drowned, and one of his companions did drown in a boating accident. And he dealt with, we all together, we worked him through the process of overcoming it. And then this, this event happened quite a while afterwards. 
he had a major panic attack and then we helped him through it because when we were clearing it with hypnosis, one of the things that we hadn't covered was the fact that when he was rescued, he was wrapped in blankets, taken somewhere warm and given a cup of tea and we hadn't dealt with that. And so that was one of the issues. And, And hypnosis does help. It does make a major difference as well as learning how to deal with your mind. Well, let me ask us, how long do, well, first of all, do you work with groups of people who have experienced trauma or do you do it one-on-one as a psychotherapist? Actually, I do both. I teach people in groups how to um, go through the basics of, of and, and some of the many things that can, re- can be reactions to trauma um, and I teach them how to handle, you know, what happens to the body and the mind and how they can help themselves and their emotions, which get really screwed up. And then um, when there are certain people who need additional help, I work with them individually. So um, at the moment, I'm preparing an online program so that that will integrate very well with group work and individual work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now, you are also an author. I haven't told the audience that. Your latest book is From Trauma to Tranquility. And uh, tell us about that. What does your book I tell us about? I decided to write that after I've had a car accident. And I watched myself go through many of the stages of trauma that I had seen, you know, I've helped my clients through. And it seemed really a good idea to make it simple so that people could see that these different things occur and what they can do to help themselves. And above all, not to be afraid, because it's so easy to be afraid when your mind is, you know, you're completely forgetful or uh, you find it difficult to concentrate or you can't eat because that's one of the, one of the many stress responses. So it, going through those three stages after my accident, I was able to fairly clearly remember and then set them out. Um, with additional information that can help people understand that the mind, the body, and the emotion are all interrelated. And, and about how long does it take you to go from this trauma to tranquility? <laughs> it depends. <laughs> it depends on a great deal of number of things, really. It depends on what's going on in your life and um, how and your history also and how you respond to things before or how you responded before you were traumatized and then learning or or changing the way you're thinking and acting. Well, it's good talking to you. I'm going to try to get a copy of your book, From Trauma to Tranquility. I'd like to know more about it, but I really want to thank you for coming on with Birdsong, and I hope that you have a good new year in 2019. I hope 2018 was good to you, too. It was very good, and I wish you and All your listeners, a very, very happy new year. All right. Thank you very much, Gillian. Gillian Padgett, she is a um, psychotherapist and a hypnotherapist, and she works with victims of crime and families of murder victims, and she has a new book called uh, From Trauma to Tranquility. It can be in bookstores and online. Thanks so much, Gillian. This is Birdsong. I'll be back. There's more. Hey folks, thanks for staying with me. This is Birdsong back here. Coming to the end of 2018, it's going to be a new year in 2019 in just a couple of days. 
Hope you have prosperous times in 2019 and hope 2018 is good to you. This is the end of the month, the end of the year. I'm going to give you some news tidbits. I do this at the last part of the year, or the last part of the month each month. These are stories that are true, stories that are in the news, many of them reported by the Associated Press. Some of them you may have heard, but most of them you probably didn't. Why don't you listen to what I have? These are all true. Our first story says, A New Mexico, that's the headline. A District of Columbia clerk refused to accept a New Mexico man's state driver's license for a marriage license. Why? Because she and her supervisor believed New Mexico was a foreign country. Gavin Clarkson, who is a Native American, says the clerk told him that he'd need an international passport to get the marriage license. <laughs> the clerk finally concluded New Mexico was a state after Clarkson objected three times, and Clarkson and his fiancée, they got the license, thanks heavens. The D.C. court system acknowledged the staff error to the Las Cruces Sun News newspaper, Most of us know that New Mexico was admitted to the United States as a state in 1912. I don't know how these dummies in the place where I spent most of my life didn't know that New Mexico <laughs> was a state in the United States. There's more. Here's a strange story, but true. The headline, 300-pound gals deadly crush. A woman has pleaded guilty to killing her boyfriend by stabbing him, hitting him with a table leg, and crushing him under the weight of her roughly 300 pounds. Her name, Wendy Thomas. She lives in Erie, Pennsylvania. She faces a sentence of between 18 to 36 years in prison after pleading guilty to third-degree murder. Now, she had been scheduled for trial uh, in the middle of December, but she pled guilty. And she has already now been sentenced. We don't know exactly what the sentence is, but we do know that uh, Miss Thomas is 44. She did admit killing a fellow by the name of Keno Butler last March, partially by laying on top of him. The 44-year-old Butler weighed only 120 pounds. Butler's sister said her family is still coping with her brother's death and had been hoping for a longer prison sentence for Thomas, according to the Erie News Times News newspaper. 300-pound gals, deadly crush. My, my, what a way to go. Here's a story from Pennsylvania, another one from Pennsylvania. The headline reads, Driven to Return to Jail. A Pennsylvania man... Released from jail, immediately stole a car from its parking lot, police say. Moments after Thomas Lee Williams, 36, was released in the parking lot of the jail, he stole a woman's car with a one-year-old kid in the back seat. Westmoreland County prison officials said this is what happened. Williams crashed the car about 15 minutes after getting it, and then ran into the woods where he was apprehended. The Philadelphia man was back in custody the next day, and in lieu of $250,000 bail, he's still being held. No lawyer would speak for Williams. 
No lawyer who could speak for Williams is list, not listed in uh, court records here. I hope he gets a lawyer, though. He needs one. This next story comes from Australia. The headline reads, They're burning mad. Australian senior citizens are fuming over a plan to build a crematorium next to their retirement village. Can you imagine that? We all know we're going to go at some time or other, but we don't want to be reminded on a daily basis, said Palm Lake Resort resident Ron Wells. Added Diane Cordaro, who also lives in the Logan City, Queensland facility, says, quote, I don't want to think of my neighbor dies that I'm watching her being burnt across the road, end quote. They're burning mad, folks. <laughs> Now, you know, I'm not for getting rid of guns. I don't believe the government should take people's guns. I believe in the Second Amendment. But stories like this next one always make me shake my head. The headline, Tot 2 Shoots Mom in Back. That's the headline. A young mother was shot in the back by her two-year-old child, police in Louisiana said. The mother, 23, and the toddler were in the bedroom of the family's Shreveport home Saturday in a Saturday in uh, December, and uh, the child accidentally fired the gun, according to the Shreveport Times newspaper. The woman was shot only once and seriously wounded. She was taken to the hospital. There's no update on her condition, but we do not hear that she passed away. Tot 2 shoots mom in the back. Awful. Now, here's an interesting story. Where does this one come from? Italy. Maybe tell, the headline says, maybe Teflon Don has another meaning. Men could wind up with penises a half inch shorter if their parents were exposed to high levels of chemical found in non-stick frying pans, according to a new study. The chemicals called PFCs, can interfere with male hormones while in the womb and can lead to sexual organs being significantly shorter and thinner, the study by scientists in Italy says. Maybe Teflon Don has another meaning. <laughs> oh, my, these studies, these studies. Here's a little Christmas story. The headline read, all she wants for Christmas is this freaking pothole fixed. Another story from Pennsylvania. A Pennsylvania woman couldn't get officials to fill a crater-like sinkhole on her street. So she stuffed it with holiday decorations, and now they're paying attention. That is the officials. Her name, Marietta Spack. She and other residents of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, filled the eyesore in the middle of the road with a Christmas tree and a plastic Santa Claus statue. After weeks of being ignored, complaints, or ignoring her complaints, the city now says it planned to fix the hole during Christmas week. Let's hope that it's been taken care of. Now here's one of the most bizarre stories that I've seen in a long time. The headline says, Pain relief really stings. This comes from Cuba. Once a month, 
for the last decade, Pepe Casanas, a 78-year-old Cuban farmer, has hunted down a scorpion to sting himself with to ward off his rheumatism pains. Researchers in Cuba have found that the venom of the Caribbean island's blue scorpion appears to have anti-inflammatory and pain relief properties and may be able to delay tumor growth. While oncologists say more research is needed, Cuban pharmaceutical firm Libiofam has been using scorpion venom since 2011 to manufacture the homeopathic medicine called Vitatox. Quote, I put the scorpion where I feel pain, Casasa says. It hurts for a while, but then it calms down and I don't have any more pain. Good for him. But the headline says, pain relief really stings. <laughs> Listen, have you heard this one? I don't know if Robert Mueller has heard this one. The headline says, ex-con Don Aid eyes bid. Fresh out of prison for lying to the FBI, ex-Trump campaign advisor George Papadopoulos is plotting his own run for office. He says, quote, I will be running for Congress in 2020 and I will win, end quote. He tweeted, then he tweeted, stay tuned. The Chicago native outlined plans to move to Orange County, California in an interview with the Daily Telegraph newspaper in England. Quote, I just have to find a little Republican enclave somewhere in this part of the country and run, 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 run for office there. Orange County is traditionally a Republican turf, but voters in the area elected several Democrats to Congress this past November. Papadopoulos told the, the British newspaper, The Telegraph, that voters will forgive him for lying in testimony about his conversations with foreigners during his time with the Trump campaign. Quote, we all make mistakes, he said. <laughs> I don't think he's going to win, folks. <laughs> George Papadopoulos running for Congress. Our last story for this year, last news tidbit, Tale of the Vape. Teens e-cig use double, says the headline. Tale of the Vape. Twice, twice as many high school students use nicotine-tinged electronic cigarettes this year compared with last year. An unprecedented jump in a large annual survey of teen smoking, drinking, and drug use. It was the largest single-year increase in any category in the University of Michigan survey's 44-year history, far surpassing a mid-1970 surge in marijuana smoking. The findings being released, uh, that were released this month, echo those of a government survey that came out earlier this year. That survey also found a dramatic rise in vaping among children and promoted, or prompted rather, federal authorities and regulators to press for measures that make it harder for kids to get these e-cigarettes. Experts attribute the jump to newer versions of e-cigarettes, such as those by Juul Labs that resemble computer flash drives and can be used discreetly. <laughs> discreetly, rather. Tale of the Vape. Teens e-cig use doubles. Oh, well, there's always something new under the sun. E-cigarettes that look like 
computer flash drives. Well, here we are. It's time for some riddle, riddles. You may have heard these. They're simple. First riddle. What never asks questions but get lots of answers? What never asks questions but gets lots of answers? Think about it. It's not that difficult. Second riddle. How do trees feel in the springtime? How do trees feel in the springtime? Finally, what do you call a cat that eats a lemon? All right, I'll come back with the answers of those riddles. I want you to ponder them. Stick with me. There's more. This is Birdsong. Here I am again, Birdsong with you at the end of the year. Hope you're going to have a good 2019. Hope you had a good 2018. I have Paul Harvey's last book he wrote. It's called For What It's Worth. These are stories that have been sent to him over the years. They're true stories. He put them in a book. I'm going to read some of them. Today's comes from Chicago. Dr. Roland Cross of Loyola Medical Hospital in Chicago got a bill from the hospital. The doctor got a bill. $309 for anesthesia during cesarean delivery. Now, Dr. Cross notified hospital auditors that he had, had not been hospitalized for any reason. And certainly a 70-year-old man like him would not be having a C-section. Well, the hospital apologized and blamed its computer. But guess what? Now Dr. Cross has been notified by Blue Cross that his hospital bill has been paid. $309 for anesthesia during cesarean delivery. And Blue Cross further offers its congratulations on the birth of twins. <laughs> oh, the computer did it again. <laughs> okay. All right, let me read these. Uh, let's get to the riddles here. I'll tell you, I want to give you the answers to them. These are really easy riddles. First one, what never asks questions but gets lots of answers? What never gets, you know, what never asks questions but gets lots of answers? Well, the answer is the telephone, folks. You know that. <laughs> Second riddle, how do you? How do trees feel in the springtime? How do trees feel in the springtime? They feel relieved. How about that? <laughs> Finally, riddle number three. What do you call a cat who eats lemons? What do you call a cat who eats lemons? Well, you call it a sourpuss. <laughs> Oh, those are cute. They weren't that difficult. I hope you got all of them. At any rate, Birdsong is going to be sending a signing off for the day, but I want to give you my last thought for the week. Success is nothing more than a few simple disciplines. A few simple disciplines practiced every day, while failure is, a, is simply a few errors in judgment 
repeated every day. It is the accumulative weight of our disciplines and our judgments that lead us to either fortune or failure. Think about it, folks. Think about it. It's our accumulative weight of our disciplines and our judgments that lead us to either fortune or failure. This is Birdsong. It's been great being with you this year. If you want to text me, text 904-878-8170, and I will get back to you. I'm signing off. Have a happy new year, folks. This is Birdsong. Talk to you in 2019.